From the north, citizens of Earth, welcome to another forum episode exploring the mysteries of time, cycles, cosmos, and consciousness. Before I go on to say anything at all, I encourage you to listen closely to this. Lost civilizations, the golden age, Shangri-La. Might there be some truth to these ancient tales? Our ancestors spoke of a grand cycle bringing about high ages of enlightenment and low ages of darkness, marked by the movement of the heavens. The notion of individuals in their own place of worship being connected to some larger, either terrestrial or cosmic space, is not uncommon. Mayan astronomy looked at huge cycles of movements of stars. They actually had an exact date in their calendar for the beginning of the world. The evidence for these advanced civilizations is, is almost universal in the sense that they seem to be at their height very near the beginning. Just as day and night are caused by the spinning Earth and the seasons are caused by the Earth's orbit around the Sun, some ancient cultures believed there's an even larger cycle that influences the rise and fall of civilizations. History and astronomy may help us rediscover this forgotten cycle, a cycle said to be so vast it reaches beyond our solar system, yet affects our everyday lives. Plato called it the Great Year. Could it be that our sun is in a binary orbit creating a 24,000-year cycle that affects the rise and fall of civilization? Many ancient cultures seemed to think so, and now some modern-day scientists agree. If true, there should be evidence of advanced civilizations older than the five or 6,000 years we find in most of today's textbooks. Up until recently, archaeology placed the origins of what we would call civilization back about 3,000, 3,500 BC with the rise of Sumer and Egypt and India, China as well. But over the last four or five decades, it's becoming clear that there was plenty going on before that. Recent discoveries of complex structures near Hamakar, Syria are estimated to date back almost 6,000 years. Still more startling, a team of Indian oceanographers has found the remains of a huge city submerged in the Gulf of Cambay. An astounding 10 square miles in size, the city has been carbon dated at 9,500 years old. And in Nabta Playa, Egypt, a circle of stones acts as a calendar star map that plots the exact points of stars and possibly their distances. Archaeologists believe the site might be as old as 10,000 BC. Definitely, Indians were in North America at least 14,000 years ago, probably 15, 16,000 years ago. Almost every week or month or so, they're finding some new bit of archaeological evidence that keeps pushing the clock back. 
These discoveries confirm that complex societies all over the globe are older than previously thought. There's also evidence that ancient cultures on different continents communicated with each other. Is it just coincidence that the architecture from the Americas, the Middle East, and Asia share some striking similarities? Communication between civilizations on different continents is also suggested by their use of similar timekeeping systems. The Babylonians, Egyptians, and Yucatec Mayans all had comparable means of dividing the days, months, and years. New discoveries in astronomy and archaeology are adding more and more to our understanding of the true depth of our own history. If we continue these pursuits, perhaps we will prove the link between binary motion, precession, and man's place in the great year. There's going to be changes that are coming that are going to be mind-boggling to humanity. History reveals that ancient cultures around the globe were aware of a great cycle that connected the movements of the heavens and life on Earth. The great year tracked not only time, but perhaps we will find the very rise and fall of civilization itself. Now, what you just heard is an excerpt of a documentary created by our guest tonight, and it serves as an excellent teaser for what our discussion will be all about. But per usual, let me first give a proper presentation of our guest, Walter Crutton III, who is an author, filmmaker, fintech innovator, and angel investor in growth companies that serve a social need. Early in his career, he founded several well-known investment banking and brokerage firms. In 77, he founded Capital Data Bank, a computerized system to match private companies with private investors. As CEO, he grew it under the name Kurt and Roth, now Roth Capital Partners, which became the largest investment bank in the financing micro companies. And since 83, a leader in funding emerging growth companies. In 88, he founded one of the largest US growth stock conferences, now called the Roth Conference. In 93, he bought acoustic technology from Hughes and co-founded SRC Labs, since acquired by DTS, a leader in acoustic technology. In 99, he founded eOffering, which became the number one provider of online IPOs. In 01, he established his investment firm Crut and Partners, where he serves as president. Then he went on to co-found Acorns in 12, the first and largest micro-investing platform where he currently serves as CEO. Acorns app enable users to set up automated investments where they save and invest in tiny increments with high frequency, requiring no conscious effort. Basically, Acorn round up a debit or credit card per case to the nearest dollar and invests the change for you automatically. This brilliant idea has helped a lot of people save money. He then turned his attention to micro-earning, bringing his innovative ideas straight to the source, games and the gamers who play them. 
In 17, he co-founded Blast, where he serves as CEO. Their app features a new game dynamic improving the financial outcome for both gamers and game companies alike, allowing gamers to save money simply by doing what they already enjoy. In 18, he started the crowdfunding company ATM.com, where he serves as chairman, and his latest startup is InvestableGames.com. Thus far his business ventures, but his real passion is history and astronomy. His diverse interests in historical cycles and markets meet where the trend of history provide insight into the movement of markets. When not engaged in fintech, Walter Crottenden works as executive director of the Binary Research Institute, which he founded in 01. They research the cause and consequences of solar system motions and its potential connections to cycles on Earth. Their work indicate that the mechanics of well-known celestial motion have been misdiagnosed and are actually the result of our own solar system's motion, and that this motion has profound effects on life akin to the changing seasons. This discovery lends its validation to the worldwide ancient myth and folklore that our consciousness actually moves in a vast cycle of time, with alternating dark and golden ages. In concert with this mission, he has organized the annual conference on precession and ancient knowledge since 08. CPAC features authors and scientists from around the world, discussing the implications of celestial cycles on biology, archaeology, anthropology and their environment. As part of this cosmological work, Walter has written articles and papers on solar system motion and cycles of time, such as Ancient Cosmology, A Map of the Future, and authored the book Lost Star of Myth and Time, and the children's book The Great Year Adventures with Tommy the Time Travelling Turtle, and he wrote and produced the award-winning documentary The Great Year. And finally, as a media tool to promote exploration of the subject of solar system motions and its cyclical effects, Walt hosts a podcast Cosmic Influence, where he, together with Geoff Patino and Sean Freeman, explore the ancient myth and folklore of cultures throughout the world and its connections to the stars. Welcome to Forum Borealis, Walt. Hey, Al. How are you? I'm fine. I hope it's okay I call you Walt. I, I forgot check. <laughs> yes, that is fine. It's shorter than Walter, so we'll get more words in. <laughs> exactly. The same with you and Al. So now we've okay. saved a few seconds there. <laughs> now, speaking of seconds, which is, uh, you know, normally it's converted to hertz, which is a great measurement for things. Mm-hmm. Um I've been working, and I told you a little before we started, I've been working a little with vibrations and cycles myself in my life through my private interests, esoteric interests. And I've had a great fun trying to, you know, the ancient uh, uh, pre-Socrates, they talked about the harmony of the spheres, how everything in existence makes sound, how the huge celestial bodies in their movements makes sound even though we can't hear it right and uh, i've been having fun trying to convert 
if, for example, the earth, to find the earth's sound, the melody of the earth, convert its different movements to hertz, yeah. which you have done to convert to seconds, right? Yeah, sounds good. And through that work, it struck me that we humans, we are kind of narrowed into a very limited range of arithmetics, of numbers, of what we can see. And I'm ignorant on the huge scales, like the cycles, like, you know, for, for Earth, one year is probably just a second. Right. But you, as far as I understand, and like people heard in introduction, have been studying uh, cycles, uh, not just those that we can relate to as human beings, but also the big ones, the cosmic cycles. Um, so I'm going to pick your brain on, uh, we've had uh, an expert on the Mayan calendar on. Okay. But we haven't covered the Western, uh, like the, the Greek, Egyptian, Indian. And I'm assuming you know uh, some stuff about that because I was very impressed with your great year film. Yeah, I, I know a little bit at a high level. It's not what my studies are in, but uh, happy to touch on that, as, particularly as it relates to the great year. Yeah. So my first question to you is, how on earth, <laughs> how in cosmos did you end up with such a exotic field of interest? Well, uh, you know, when I was a little boy, I loved archaeology and astronomy. And my mom used to buy me books on the subject. And I studied it. And I came to the conclusion that a lot of ancient cultures were actually quite advanced prior to the Dark Ages. You know, ancient Egypt was a great flourishing civilization, and it was pretty much in ruins by the time of the Dark Ages. Yeah. Same thing with ancient uh, Babylonia, Sumer, Akkad, and uh, of course, the, the Greek and Roman civilizations declined into the Dark Ages. And, and so I, I kind of wondered why. And um, they don't teach you this in school. Uh, they teach you everything is pretty linear. You know, this strong Darwinian viewpoint that anything that came before us must be more primitive, because that's sort of the basic tenet of evolution. And um, and so I wasn't seeing it. And time passed. And finally, I read a book when I was in my 30s. And this book was called The Holy Science by Swami Sri Yukteswar, mm. and it was written in 1894. And in there, he explained it beautifully how this worked. And he, he laid out a, a few points uh, that could be tested. And so I spent, you know, a decade sort of testing some of these premises and realized that he was right um, about this cycle, which Plato calls the great year. And it's it's effectively one procession of the equinox. Mm. And and to address your point, you know, yes, I study cycles, but I find that, you know, if, if they're too short in milliseconds, then it, it almost hardly matter. It doesn't matter because, you know, we can't relate to that. And likewise, if they're too long, if they're, mm. you know, millions and millions of years that philosophically, yeah, you might say that. You know, there are these big cycles. There seems to be some evidence for them. But again, we have a hard time relating to them versus the cycle of the day. We can certainly relate to that's one diurnal motion, a rotation of the earth. Cycle of the year, we can certainly relate to mm -hmm. um, and the seasons that it produces and the 
in the gray area. Yeah, especially, especially here at, the, at this part of Earth, seasons have much, yeah, big impact. Yeah, yeah, in Norway, I'm sure you feel them mm-hmm. far more than we do here in Southern California. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you're attuned, uh, you we notice very little subtle things happening all year long. So the seasons are there. They're just not as pronounced because we don't have snow. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I guess uh, I guess Einstein at least was right in that everything is relative because we, we talk about cycles of of you know grand major cycles and minuscule cycles. Like we talked about yoga meditation before we started, and right. one thing I I uh, learned um, or became I should say noticed when I was a teacher in meditation. That's that those meditation, because we, my school had all meditation forms, all seven forms. Of course, there's a million techniques, uh, there's many types, but you can classify them into seven basic forms. And I've noticed that the the meditations that expands the consciousness versus the meditations that focuses the consciousness. Very interesting was that when people came out of those meditations, there were two diametrical opposite experiences they would remark stuff like wow has it only been 10 minutes felt like an hour right and on the opposite side they would say like wow it's been as much as half an hour i I thought i was gone for five minutes and i've noticed that's to do with if the consciousness is zoomed in or zoomed out so i i guess those (laughs) uh, small cycles would be very relevant if i was an ant (laughs) or even smaller creature and the bigger the consciousness you know the bigger the cycles matter so i guess our sun for example uh, is more concerned with if it has a consciousness it would have uh, you know, it would be other cycles than those we relate to that's relevant. But yeah. you you said you read about astronomy and you realized that there wasn't a linear, you know, the, the big lie that we are taught that everything is gradual, getting better. So I'm assuming that you are then in favor of an antediluvian civilization. Yeah, the, the concept that there's, a, you know, a pre-flood Civilization uh, fits very well with, obviously, uh, Plato's idea of a great year, mm. and many, many, many other cultures have have flood myths. So it does seem to be some evidence to that. Um, of course, when I was growing up, there was really nothing uh, much older than five or 6,000 years, uh, archaeologically speaking, mm. and um and since that time, they've found quite a number of fascinating sites, uh, including Gobekli Tepe and similar places in Turkey nowadays that you know are, are twice the age and and would effectively go back to to that uh, antediluvian edge, if you will. Mm. But I I don't really focus on it in terms of uh, pre-flood versus a post-flood as much as what drives the cycle and what's its period and can mm. we see the effects of that yeah and so once again the i like to use the day and the year because it's people can relate to that and it's not as much of a leap than when we go to the great year so mm. one spin of the earth's axis gives you night and day and and our consciousness uh, which you were just mentioning uh, how it can be modified in meditation is is adapted to change with this diurnal motion of the earth so that when it's dark for 
a fairly long period of time, we get tired and we tend to uh, want to go into the subconscious state. And and when it's light, you know, we want to be active, and uh, and we're in a conscious state. And it's it's actually a rather remarkable idea that a celestial motion sort of governs our consciousness, our changes is daily consciousness. Uh, but yet it's so common that we don't really think anything of it. But it is, it's rather profound. And likewise, with the second motion of the earth, it's revolution around the sun on a roughly 23, 24 degree tilt of the axis produces this phenomena where you get uh, you know, a lot more photons per square inch mm-hmm. during the summer and a lot fewer photons per square inch during the winter. And there's there's just uh in the northern hemisphere here. And it's uh it it also life has fallen into sync with that celestial cycle. And you know, we know that trillions of things spring out of the ground and bloom and give their fruit when that is expanding, the amount of light is increasing. And then when the light changes directions, just because of celestial motion causes it to, uh, things decay and seem to go dormant or die. Um, And other things will spawn or migrate or go into or out of hibernation, you know, with this cycle. So it literally affects trillions of things on earth. And again, we don't think too much of it just because it's so darn common. So yeah. the, the point here is that if there is a third cycle, and it's not just the Earth spinning on its axis, it's not just the Earth going around the sun, but the whole s- solar system going around another star, mm-hmm. then the effects should be just as profound, just as pronounced, mm-hmm. but happening over such a long period of time, uh, you know, equal to the periodicity of this larger orbital motion, that uh, and and one procession of the equinox takes roughly twenty four thousand years. It's yeah uh, that yeah that you, you would barely notice it in a lifetime, and yet over that lifetime, from beginning to end, there's rather significant changes. Yeah, there's so much in what you said there that uh, I want us to go into, and I wanna I wanna put on the brakes a little before we go to the should I say quote unquote central sun? Okay. The, potential culprit that uh, uh, the whole solar system is uh, going around. I want to back up first some clarification. We can't expect all listeners to know all the jargons. So could you just briefly explain the uh, procession to people, what that actually means and and how it works? Yes, uh, gladly. And let me explain it in terms of observables, what you see, because it's easy for people to to understand it that way versus the scientific explanation. So, mm. so again, what you see when the Earth spins on its axis is the sun and all the stars rising in the east and after 12 hours setting in the west. And that that observable of the stars making that motion around us every day from east to west is because the earth is turning in the opposite direction and that produces that observable wait a minute if the earth had rotated uh, not in that direction but opposite of that the, would the sun then rise in the west and go down in the east oh if the earth 
spun backwards to where it spins yeah. right now. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. So it's actually the direction of the spin of the earth that determines that. And then what determines yeah. the season is the rotation around the sun, right? The way we go around the sun. Yeah. But just on the first one, mm. to take take your point even farther, mm -hmm. if the earth didn't spin at all, mm. then the stars are just fixed right where they are. They don't don't move it at all. And you know, there probably wouldn't be any life except right on the very edge of where the sun is, say at dawn and dusk. A little detour, although we are in the middle of you, you explaining the equinox, of course, of course, we're not right. forgetting that. But a little interesting, relevant detour is that there's this concept of the golden age. According to Jusselin Goodwin's book, Arctos, um, they say that mo many of the ancient tradition, they said that once upon a time, there was a permanent summer. And then, you know, you, gradually, as you go to the poles, there were gradual uh, to permanent winter. Huh. And the only way that could happen is, as I understand it, but I'm not into the technicality here, so maybe you can correct me, but is that if the Earth wasn't tilted, can you confirm that's how, how it would be? No, I, I can't. <laughs> okay. I, yeah. I mean, the, the tilt of the Earth will uh, give you know, uh, one hemisphere will have the opposite seasons of the other hemisphere. And if if the Earth wasn't tilted, then the hemispheres wouldn't have opposite seasons. They would be the same. Mm. Yeah. Maybe that's what he meant then. Maybe I just misunderstood it. But at least at the go in the Golden Age, the idea was that we didn't have seasons. And I'm not yeah. sure what... I, I don't know exactly what he said, but... Uh, mm. Let's just put that in the back of our minds for now. Let me think yep. about that. And then move on with the with the equinox. Okay. Yeah. So, so the, the equinox is, is the third observable that Copernicus defined. Copernicus, you know, saw the, the uh, sun and the stars rise in the east and set in the west, and he had to explain it. Mm. And, uh, you know, when he was sort of redesigning Ptolemy's uh, uh, solar system model. And so he said, ah, the Earth spins on its axis. And that's why we see that. It's just uh, uh, something that happens because our point of view is changing, not because the stars are moving. Mm. And so everyone bought off on that. And then he had to explain the second observable, which is there's a different constellation overhead each month, you know, of the 12 zodiac constellations, which are used as sort of markers or coordinates. So, you know, you can talk about where the planets are in the heavens and stuff like that. And so he said, yeah, there's a different constellation overhead each month. If you look there, say at midnight. And he said, the reason for that is again, because the, in addition to the stars going around us every day, the earth itself besides spinning on its axis, must be moving and going around the sun. Mm. And remember, this this was kind of a heretical point of view that he wrote in De Revolute Onibus, his famous book. And, uh, and it went against the church because the church said, no, the earth is the center of everything. And that's just a, a dark age belief. And, and of course, Copernicus was correct. Mm. So he explained these first two observables uh, why we see the stars 
rise in the east, set in the west, and why we see a different constellation overhead each month. And that's because the whole earth is going around the sun. But he had to explain a third one. And the third one is, even though you do get to the end of the year and the stars are roughly in the same position, they're actually off by 50 arc seconds. And it's not a large amount, but it had been talked about uh, and, and was certainly uh, written in many history books. And that equates to roughly one degree per lifetime, roughly 70 years or so. And, um, and so he said the earth must wobble. Because remember, he just established that the sun was the center of the solar system. And so if we see the sun actually go through the 12 constellations of zodiacs, which we do every year, and it ends up, you know, 50 arc seconds short uh, on the equinox, he, he has to explain that. And he couldn't have the sun actually moving. Even though the sun appears to move, it is actually going through these constellations when we look at it up mm. in the sky. Mm. Uh, but he but he just fixed this the the sun as the center of the solar system unmovable and uh and so he said the earth must wobble and that's how he explained the third the third observable and what what they call that is uh is precession and i think that sort of stems from the fact that you know during the year we see the the sun go through the constellations of the zodiac one way but year to year, they're slipping 50 arc seconds per year another direction in the opposite direction. Right. <clears throat> and so there's some common references to this, like the 60s song, uh, The Dawning of the Age of Aquarius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, because the sun was in Pisces for almost 2,000 years. You know, before that, it was in uh, Aries. And now it's it's just coming into... Aquarius. It's the dawning of the age of Aquarius. So that's kind of a modern reference to the motion of the sun through the different constellations of the zodiac. And we call that precession because that long, slow motion, 50 arc seconds per year, takes roughly 25,000 years at that rate. Uh, that's uh, that's that's precession rather than procession, which happens during the year. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, yeah. But um, what doesn't make sense is the timing because people fight. Uh, they are not agreeing. When are we transitioning out of, let's say, Pisces and into Aquarius? I mean, it goes the opposite way than the normal astrological sequence. And so, yeah, when and is, I think that's just because we don't have a convention that we've all agreed on. And so, some people use the convention that. Each zodiacal sign will be exactly 30 degrees, because then mm. when you add up 12, you get 360 degrees. Uh, even though there's not a clear star that delineates one constellation from another. And other people say, no, it's got to hit the first star that's in that constellation. And so they mm. there's some just definitional disagreement about what sign we're in, because we haven't defined clearly uh, but we do know that it is moving from Pisces into Aquarius. Everyone agrees on that, whether or not it's actually officially happened. <laughs> but uh, but didn't the ancients say, so? didn't Indians or, or Greeks say anything about this? Because they had a concept. 
Yes. Yeah. The, uh, the Indians, especially, uh, I think many cultures did, but the Indian culture is uh, exceptionally well preserved. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they had these tremendous oral traditions. Of they, they handed down all the Vedas uh, just orally. Um, mm. I understand that they had traditions like that up in your neck of the woods in Scandinavia. Um, Catholics but, managed to beat that out of us. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember reading about some anthropologists that had had found some, you know, rural people that could recite. Uh, what is your great epic tale there? Adda. Adda. Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it's true because it's um, anyone who knows anything today knows that it is the common. We, we, we're not a descendant of the Indians and they're not a descendant of us. We have a common source, Adda and Veda comes from a common source. Yes. That's a prevalent uh, attitude. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting uh, things between the your culture and the uh, Indian culture. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think maybe Sanskrit was prevalent there at one time, but that's that's a big tangent. But anyway... Or, or, or proto-Sanskrit, because uh, uh, there's a chap called Klaus Dorna, who's a collector, and he, he has artifacts that goes far back and according to him, uh, well, not just him, but experts he has consulted, is that the symbols and signs, uh, I, I hesitate calling it a language, but whatever we can glean from that seems to be a, a very rudimentary version of Sanskrit. So they just call it a proto-Sanskrit. Got it. Mm. Yeah. That's the oldest artifacts in existence. Yeah. Mm. Well, it would seem that, you know, in some earlier age there's uh, some connection there and yeah. this is why history is so fascinating you know absolutely as we as we decline from from the you know the higher ages and obviously we've gone down through the dark ages uh so much was lost just some of it just because you know consciousness is is probably uh declining but also because all the things that happen you know from asteroids or comets or huge uh, mishaps in history that, that just wipe things out. Yeah. Do you have any particular view on what caused, I mean, there may have been many extinctions scenarios, but let's say the last one then, which if we agree would be uh, around what Plato said 12,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, do you favor like, do you think like Robert Schock that it's the sun or do you think it's or like Paul La Violette that talks about um, a quasar or something, or or more like Hancock and um, Randall Carlson who talks about, um, and I think also Freddie Silva, they talk about comets. I think it's the Tories, something like that. So do you have any particular view on what could have caused our previous downfall? Yes, um, I, I do think that the, that the primary change is the, the change in electromagnetic energy, subtle energy, whatever you want to call it, from our closest star, which is the sun, because we know that changes changes the character of the day, it changes the character of the year. Mm. And and as time goes by, we forget, you know, what we did on this day last year. I mean, it's just just sort of a natural uh, process with time going by. And and then if there was something that actually wiped out the records also, 
then then that sounds very logical. But I don't think that those single event sorts of things like an asteroid or a comet or flood or or whatever are the reason for the decline in consciousness mm. um, any more than they're the reasons for the expansion of consciousness that's you know taken place since the Renaissance, which means rebirth. Yeah. Talking about the downfall, I favor, well, not favor, but uh, not sure if you're familiar with Tom van Flandern, who talks about uh, the exploded planet. Yes. That series, uh, biggest fragment of the asteroid belt, which once was a huge water planet, according to his research. But what everyone, be that as it may, what everyone can agree about is that something huge happened. And interesting, you say that uh, that's not the cause for the cultural decline, if I understood you correctly, that they worked in parallel, which would uh, suggest that consciousness and matter exist in uh, some kind of feedback loop. Yes, yes, exactly. I've really studied this uh, topic. I've spent time with uh, Tom before he passed away. And wow. We went uh, on an eclipse expedition to Australia together. Uh, you know, I've talked to John West carefully about it, Robert Schock and and Graham Hancock. They're both dear friends. Yeah, let me just uh, jump in and inform the listener that you made a great docu-movie together with, um, which we'll be get back to later, where you had um, John Anthony West on as one of the main guests. That's quite a feat to get him on before he left us. Yeah. And funny enough, the movie was narrated by Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, James Earl Jones. But anyway, the, I think the point here is um, in, in listening to all these different uh, hypotheses about what caused the fall, because this fall is mythical. It's talked about, you know, in, in many, many histories. And, um, and Graham... Uh, I, I love the way he sort of coined the term of as collective amnesia. Um, as many great uh, saints and sages, uh, you know, and esoteric religions talk about a, a time of much higher knowledge, and then we fell, and and we have to, uh, you know, regain our lost wisdom, so to speak. Um, so, I absolutely do believe that it has has sort of dual causes, if you will. There's the, the just the natural cause, the, the waxing and waning of light that causes all these transitions, these cycles. And, and that's always kind of ongoing. Fortunately, now it's, it's sort of increasing since roughly, you know, the dark ages, although it's pretty bumpy. And, uh, and then there are things that can, you know, accelerate or detract um, and they might, if they're big enough detractors, they might even uh, sort of uh, magnify the, the degree of amnesia, if you will. Um, so, But I, I don't know what those effects are. I, I do love to read about geology because, um, you know, Shock makes some terrific points. Um, and uh, so did Tom Van Flandern. So that's going to be fun cosmic motion picture to watch over the next couple hundred years and see what's determined to be the real causes there. Yeah, yeah. When I had Carlson on, we kind of agreed that there are scenarios that can accommodate all these different approaches. <clears throat> it's like um, it's like that classical parable about the blind man and the elephant. Yes. Perceiving it from multiple angles, not realizing you're addressing the same beast. 
that's uh, that's what may be going on here too. Yeah, I know John Anthony West used to like to talk about it in that respect, and but he's he, he, one of the ma- main points he made in his lifetime is that you know here we are on a relatively enlightened uh, talk show talking about what might have caused the fall, whereas mainstream history is still stuck on the idea of, of what fall, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's where there's, we are. There's this strong Darwinian paradigm that's, you know, I believe in evolution over really long periods of time. That doesn't mean that there's no day and night and no seasons and anything else in between. There's a lot of seasons in between. Yeah, let's not forget that Darwin took that evolution thing and ran with it. But the chap who really should have the kudos is, uh, what's his name, Wallace Russell? I don't recall. Russell Wallace, who did the actual work. The reason he was uh, all, almost squeezed out of history, albeit he's just as much a cornerstone in the evolution theory in science, is that he insisted that consciousness not only contributed to it, but is also dominant, yeah. according to his research, not religious notions or anything. Yeah, there's a lot of new work on this whole idea of of uh, what microorganisms have to do as part of evolution and and why it's such a big leap. It's an it's an easy thing to understand how species adapt to their environment. We will do that. We'll get good at in a certain environment. Uh, but we might not be very good when we first start playing tennis or we first start riding horses or surfing or whatever. Uh, uh, so we we all adapt in some way, but but to uh, to think that you know to extrapolate that that everything before us must be more primitive uh, and and sort of adapt it socially is just a just a crazy notion that does not fit. With the archaeological record, if you look carefully, ancient Mesopotamia, they had wonderful abilities in in Sumer, Akkad, Babylon, uh, which was all lost. By the time of the Dark Ages, there's nomads on camels barely putting up tents around fabulous ruins, uh, which they couldn't build anymore. And same thing in Egypt. You know, their earliest structures are the most beautiful and most complex with the finest tolerances, and by the time of the New Kingdom, they're they're practically gaudy and shabbily built. And then, of course, again by the Dark Ages, they can't even build an arch, you know, not to mention a pyramid. And then, of course, we slowly gain that back with the Renaissance, the, the rebirth of the cycle, uh, which you know I believe is largely caused by our whole solar system moving closer to another star and once again getting this waxing stellar light. Yeah, and regarding the macrocosmic scope in your movie, you sync the Greek and Indian calendar, and perhaps several others too, I I can't remember, but in this movie they were beautifully synced. I didn't know there was a way to convert them, so to harmonize them so succinctly. But of course all of them were big in astronomy and knew what they were talking about, but I thought it was a very difficult to, in retrospective, reconcile them exactly. So I don't know if that was a, a symbolic or actual, but I think in any case it shows that we are or have been, talk about the Dark Ages, right, okay. in what Indians call the Kali Yuga, 
So do you think we're still there? Because when I look around, it seems, although we are technically advanced, consciousness-wise, we seem to be on at, at an all-time low bottom cesspool. All right. So despite all this, are we moving away from that lowest vibration? Or, or what's going on here? Where are we in time? When are we, according to your estimation? Boy, you have two great thoughts there, so... So the, the the first one is on on the calendars sinking, and um, I, I would just refer you to uh, the Holy Science by Swami Sri Yukteswar, and he understood that ancient calendars are all based on celestial phenomena, and so if you you understand uh, how you can trace the calendars back to the point where they were linked to something, so just like the clock of the day, twelve. Noon uh, is uh, linked to when the sun is directly overhead. And then we, we move that a little bit for convenience sake. Um, so just like the, the daily system of time is based on celestial motions, you know, night and dark, a.m., more light is a.m., less, less light is p.m., mm. uh, sun overhead is 12 noon zenith. And, and likewise, during the year, the equinoxes, which is an observable phenomena uh, when the day and night are of equal length. Uh, that's when you have an equinox. And the solstices are when it's really skewed one way or the other, the longest day or the, or the longest night, winter, summer, winter solstice. Hmm. Likewise, the calendars were based on this. It's, it's only during the dark ages that calendars begin to be based on great personages, you know. Yeah beginning with the day of Jesus, for example, uh, which is wonderful uh, tribute to him. But uh, yeah, you can go back and it's a fascinating study. And then your your second point, of course, is where are we? Uh, when, when are we? <laughs> or when are we? Yeah. yeah, I think before that, your listeners need to know that the great year essentially has uh, four periods, just like the year has four seasons spring, summer, fall, and winter, except the, the great year will have those four periods when you're rising, we're getting closer to our other side, we're getting more subtle energy from this other star, and uh, consciousness is expanding. And the Greeks put it as a iron, bronze, silver, and golden age. And you're right, the Indians called the Iron Age Kali, whereas they call the rest of them Treta, Twapara Treta, and Satya Yugas. And, and other cultures have different names. You know, the Mayan called them different different suns. The Hopi called them different worlds. So, mm. um, so once you understand this framework that there's basically four rising periods and then four falling periods, then you can say, okay, where are we? And it, it all relates to where you are in the orbit. You know, when you're the farthest point from the other star, you are near the darkest point in the cycle. Although there is a that's a, in in Greek or in English, that's iron, right? You have iron, copper, silver, gold. Is that it? That's correct. Yeah, mm. yeah, and then um, and vice versa. And of course, iron, bronze, silver, and gold have different vibrations too. Gold's a much higher vibration, so it's mm. it's an apt uh, choice of metals that the uh, the Greeks adapted to describe these different cycles of time. You know, they also describe the different periods in, in terms of, of man's capabilities and 
very simply, they said the Iron Age is the age of man. And that's kind of all we know. And we just believe that the world is made of what we can perceive through the five senses. And there's no knowledge of finer forces. Uh, you know, it's not till we've blossomed out through the Renaissance here that we discovered, oh, all this hard matter is made of molecules. And what do you know? The molecules are made of atoms and the atoms are made of protons, neutrons, electrons, mm. etc. And and oh, we've reinvented uh, optics and we can now see very far. And there's, wow, there's a whole bunch of galaxies out there we didn't know about. And, and we can see really small. And then, um, uh, so that's the Dwapara Yuga, you know, this awareness of finer forces. And um, what I, I believe the Greeks, there's the age of man. Let me just remind my memory here. Yeah. I'm looking in my children's book, Tommy the Time Traveling <laughs> Turtle, because I have okay. good, good because many sages say if you can't, if you can't crystallize the wisdom down to the simplest communication, you haven't really understood it. So nothing is better than. Yeah. So the age of man is the Iron Age. Then right. this is uh, from the Tommy the Time Traveling Turtle, the Great Year Adventures, <laughs> okay. and and the age that we're currently in, this Bronze Age, where you become aware of finer forces. Uh, the Greeks called the age of the hero. Ah. So we're just just kind of breaking out, and, and that answers that. Yeah, yeah, we're we're still kind of man, but we kind of think that we're capable of much more. Mm. And uh, and sure, I'm, ho I'm holding out for a hero. <laughs> and then the the next two, the Silver Age is the age of the demigod, and finally the Golden Age is the, is gods, the age of yeah. the god, or yeah, or the gods. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that Hollywood depicts the Silver Age, the age of the demigod, as a time when a human marries a god, and that's how you have demigods. Mm. But uh, but the Greeks were a little more philosophical about it. That no, that's actually when our consciousness is transcending from just thinking we're this pile of flesh and bones that we drag around to realizing that we're something much more uh, this great energy capable of vast and wonderful things that's right that's right if you go to all the ancient philosophies and esoteric traditions you'll see some common denominators if you can look past obvious differences like cultural lingual symbolic, doctrinal, religious. And one of them, one of these common denominators is the fact that man, even Christianity kind of accepts, recognizes this, the, uh, that man has an innate spirit, uh, divine seed that can uh, be, develop and become yeah, become divine, that we can recognize our own divinity. I mean, when I say that even Christians have, you might say, oh, you know, this is heresy in Christian. Well, Enoch. Enoch became the first angel, and his name was changed then to not Sandalfon, but Metatron. The only angel who, Sandalfon and Metatron, the only angels that we, which name doesn't end on E-L, you know, uh, Mikael, Angel means messenger of God. So, yeah, the idea that we can raise and become divine uh, or become uh, more than what we are. Of yeah. course, this can be twisted. And the Nazis, they regarded Nietzsche's take on it and took that and ran with it. So, yeah, you can have it in all sorts of weird versions. But the underlying idea 
is that we are in an evolution again back to evolution right evolution isn't a material concept it's a principle concept it's a philosophical concept more than anything yes it can be physical but it can also be in consciousness so i'm totally on board with you when you try to make a case for that yeah and in a lower age where we are now you know we're just barely into the bronze age so we're yeah not even a quarter away through this cycle you still it's still very hard to understand these things so you know you you mentioned that the christians might not be aware of that and and i would take issue with that a little bit that there's many christian mystic traditions yeah that are are ve- very well aware of what jesus said you know ye are gods mm. these things that i do ye shall do also and greater things you know he was kingdom is within yeah he prayed our father and he was trying to lift us up to his level not mm. not make this big difference but i do understand in this fairly low, still very material age, we're going to interpret things in simple ways and then therefore lose a lot of the meaning. And that's that's just part of the story. So if we were in the Bronze Age still, but we had, I mean, in the Iron Age, but we're heading into the Bronze, we're somewhere in between that transition. Some people would say, well, I would expect things to get better. But isn't it true that in transition periods, yes, some things can can be better, but then it can be worse again, like it's birth, uh, what you call it in English, uh, we birth pain kind of that yes, it would be yes. a, yeah. in a revolting period that it can be like a little chaotic and it can be a little bit of both in the transition period. Yes, yes. I, I do think, you know, we have sort of a warped sense of perception with with our vast technology things are so much better than they were a thousand years ago in the depths of the dark ages. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking right now. What are we 8,000 miles apart or so, right, 6,000 right. miles apart? I, don't, I can't recall yeah. what our distance is, but uh, we, would, we would burn on the stake together. <laughs> right. Yeah. And if, and if we did talk and say such things, you're right. There's no, no higher form of governance. You know, they would literally burn you at the stake and maybe you'd live to be, 35 years old, you know, <laughs> if you didn't die from the plague or something much sooner, because that was old age back then. So everything has improved and it, it particularly shows up in our technology, but it's almost as if our technology and our consciousness is growing so fast. And I, I think technology is just a manifestation of our technology that we can't build certain things when we have a low consciousness. And as our consciousness expands, now we can build so all sorts of crazy things, but we haven't quite got the maturity and the spiritual discipline to properly use things yet. And so there is, uh, you know, the world's a little goofed up. Uh, there, There's a great saint, uh, Paramahansa Yogananda, and he talks about this age and said, uh, yeah, the Dwapara Yuga, Bronze Age, is, is a little dangerous because man is expanding in consciousness and developing all this technology and weapons. He said, but don't worry, it only lasts 2,000 years, and then before you know it, you're in the telepathic age, <laughs> and and then, uh, you know, people are very honest with each other, and things, we all get along much better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the birth of the internet is halfway there, because before the internet, it was so easy for any powers that be uh, 
to keep people divided and in control and check. Problem is now everybody can talk with each other and all the narratives are falling apart. Like a politician, for example, could lie and get away with it in the old days. These days, I mean, they're trying, but I know. they are being <laughs> faced with, oh, now they're trying censorship to battle it, but they're being faced with their own actions and set words just from the last cycles because voters have a short-term memory, right? So it's hard to get away with things. Yeah. We're kind of forcing each other to become a little more honest with the internet. I know what's happening in the op opposite side of the world. Revolutions couldn't, uh, they talk about some revolutions be be because of Twitter and social media and whatnot. So that's like halfway there that we can communicate with each other. But it's if anyone sits down and think about it, if we were telepathic, the whole world, even or just on a rudimentary level, I don't need to exactly know your thought. I can know that I can get a feeling you're trying to sell me something and I can sense that you're trying to trick me, for example. So if we were a little more telepathic, the whole world would be completely different. Yes. And if that's an official view among the ancients that that's a part of our cycle, then we have some people may, oh, geez, where's, what about my privacy? But I think on the grand weight of things, we get much more back than we lose yeah. if we were able to see each other's hearts. Oh, without a doubt. Mm. Yeah, remember on the way down, uh, we go from the pre-Babel age when you know mankind communes with nature, he speaks with one tongue. Mm. There's all these beautiful stories into the age of Babel right. where mankind starts talking with all these different tongues, roughly around 3000 BC. And in fact, at that point, things are getting so goofed up, you now need writing. Mm. And so writing is, is developed because you have lost the ability in these tremendous abilities to uh, to know, which is a deep subject. But that's, uh, such, that's such a good point. If we are more or less telepathic, we don't need writing. Writing is going to be like smoke signals compared to, to <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> television or internet. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, if you're telepathic, you will find stories all around you. They will be in the rocks and the trees and the sky right. and the stars and, and deep stories. And I'm not just talking about metaphysical, metaphorical interpretations of how they move, but think that we we have instruments now that put information into silicon mm. and uh and that that's how we embed it uh, and we need instruments to get it out so we can read it and understand it every rock around us every piece of dirt and is is picking up vibrations but it's on such a subtle level mm. that it's just impossible for us to sort of decipher it out right now but you know if I go by a big rock and some people talked in front of that rock a couple thousand years ago, yeah. theoretically, those vibrations are there. Yeah, that's true. In, in parapsychology, there's a discipline called psychometry. And people who are very, very sensitive, they can get a, a, an artifact, an object. Let's say, let's say you were wearing a ring or an amulet all your life. Okay. It's going to be permeated with your vibrations. Again, just like you, I'm not talking metaphorically or poetically. I'm talking actually because we, we know that our atoms are being exchanged with anything around us, not just not just what we eat. So uh, a very sensitive person gets those in her or his hands and can then get impressions, which are basically just translations of those vibrations. Um, um, of course, 
you know, I'm not making a scientific case for this here and now. I'm just going very quick through that phenomenon. So, yeah, it's it's on an actual level. But, you know, before we go back down to Earth, where we certainly find ourselves now, I want to I wanna pick your brain a little more about the great stuff, the, the bigger things, and then we'll take it back here. Okay. And so I, I think we have to get to this, um, what the ancient Pythagoreans called the central sun. And I believe that may be what you call in your movie, that's what you call the dark, what was it again? Sorry to forget the term. Yeah, well, I, Dark Star. My my book, Lost Star, Myth Lost and Time, star. is a, Lost star. is a, is about a, a possible companion star to our sun that you know helps drive these cycles. Uh, but just so we don't get too uh, confused, mm. there there is uh, there's our sun, and then there's eighty percent of all stars that have partner suns, binary partners, or some of them have trinary partners. And then many of them have uh, sort of local stellar neighborhoods or systems where they might be swirling around a central sun or some type, large gravitational mass. Yeah, hang on, hang on. They they say that Orion and Sirius, no, no, Sirius is a twin star, isn't it? Yes, they're Sirius A and Sirius B. Right, right. Yeah. And and some people even think, and maybe you will elaborate on that, that somehow we are connected to Sirius, our son, Helios. It, it's it's possible. I I go into it in my book, uh, Lost Star, Myth, and Time. Mm. All the different scenarios mm. from from a dark star, you know, which could be a some dwarf we can't see, or even a black hole, or something like that. Yeah, they, they they traditionally they refer to that as the black sun. Yeah, mm. to Bernard star, the fastest moving star in the sky, which will be the closest star to us at some point. Uh, mm. And Sirius does seem to be a role. I mean, the kinematics of of the local stellar system still isn't very well understood, but it, it appears that that Sirius sort of dogs our sun, if you will. It, it it follows it as 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 our sun and maybe even its companions are move in a larger motion. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, and I'm kind of waiting for the science to be all figured out here. Mm. But I wouldn't just jump to the to the idea that that would be our companion star. It could could play another role in our system. Mm. But when you talk about, uh, and I'm a full confession, I haven't read your book yet, uh, but I, it's on my list. I'm going to get it. Lost Star of Myth and Time. What are you referring to then? I'm referring to the idea that our sun likely has a companion star because 80% of all stars out there do. Mm. And the only way you can properly explain precession procession equinox, why we see the sun moving through different constellations, um, in my mind, is that the, the solar system curves through space. And the reason it curves, it curves around another large mass. It's gravitationally attracted to a likely companion star. That's right. You, you get into this in your movie, too. Yeah. yeah. You know what? Working with meditations on cosmic uh, scales, the very ancient meditations from the Pythagoreans, there they all mm-hmm. worked with Earth, Moon, Sun, and working with what they just call the central sun. Right. To align with uh, what they said 
was what the sun revolved around. So it's a very interesting old meditation practice. Yeah, there is um, in the holy science, Sri Yukteswar talks about this idea, and he's a beautiful, enlightened master, you know, performed many miracles. But yeah, he says we go around this nearby star, a a duel to the sun, he calls it, Mm. uh, which causes the cycle of the ages. And then the uh, this binary pair uh, goes around. There's an even larger cycle where it goes around this other. Um, mm-hmm. But what he does sometimes refer to as a central sun, um, and in his culture, it's called Vishnu Nabi or the seat of Brahma, and it's it's a place. Mm. But anyway, procession is once you really understand it, it is such a key. It's it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're w- working on another film, uh, sort of a follow-up to the documentary we did, the one with James Earl Jones you mentioned, yeah. The Great Year. And this, but this other film, and my my uh, partner here, Filiberto, sitting right next to me, mm-hmm. he's uh, helping to gather all the assets uh, so to get into pre-development. But is, is he like uh, a producer then of this movie? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you, Philly? <laughs> yeah. Um- it's a jack of all trades. Yeah, the jack of all trades, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I'm helping on, on managing the, the production of the movie as of now. But but let me ask you this. Are you also uh, familiar with the concept that is being entertained philosophically in the movie? Yes, I have uh, the pleasure to be involved in the conferences with Walter since, what, 2007, I think? Uh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, 15 years. Yeah, because maybe when the movie is out, you could come back. We could make a follow-up show with you. Oh, definitely we will. Great. Yeah, Yeah, great. That'll be far in the future with advanced technology. You'll have video. Yeah, Yeah, we're soon (laughs) entering the video age here at the forum. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be fun. But anyway, yeah, in the... uh, in the film and this one will be sort of fictionalized because it's easier to tell this story right uh then we'll get into some of these uh, possible scenarios and and how it works a little bit we're having a lot of fun uh right now Mm. we have a have a script we like and uh, in the development process yeah when we are at movies, I see from IMDb that you've been interviewed in Carmen Bolter's productions. Isn't she the, I think she's the one behind the Pyramid Code and Magical Egypt. Yeah. Yes. She's a another beautiful soul yeah. that just recently left us. No, you're kidding me. Yeah. Just, just in the last year. She agreed to come on my show, but I never got around to it. Bad news. Yeah. I mean, not just for that, but like a great source of information has left this earth. Yes. Yeah. She's a beautiful soul. And, uh, oh. but uh, in a higher age, you'll be able to have her on telepathically. <laughs> uh, I, I read a story about, uh, I think this place takes place in the New Kingdom. So it's roughly the same place that we are now, uh, maybe just slightly higher on on the scale, but it's in the descending age versus the right, ascending right. age like we are now. Mm. And it's a, it's a court case. I think it's in Ramsey's, uh, Ramsey's the second reign. And uh, someone had committed a, a murder. And uh, so they, they found these records of, of the court and they call a witness telepathically. Uh, because they just come from the telepathic age, remember, and so this mm. this is much 
sort of still common knowledge. And though it may not be working as well as, as it's working in a higher age, uh, they still had that ability in court cases, which is just fascinating. You call upon people, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Huh. It reminds me of the, in, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, they have these stones that they can see through. We know Tolkien, of course, took everything from mythology, so it's it's not far-fetched. But uh, uh, when it comes to Mrs. Bolter, is it is it a long time since she passed on? I think less than a year ago. Less than a year, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I, uh, I, I agreed with, to get her on like four or five years ago. And we never got around to it. There were some complications. And then some months ago, I was thinking, oh, I have to get back to Carmen. And um, here we are. Well, her pyramid code lives on, and she did a really fine job there. We gave her a shout out now. So, yeah. Yeah. She spoke at many of our conferences. And I don't think we've even put all those tapes tapes online, but we're in the process of doing that slowly but surely. That's great. great. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our webpage. Thanks. Well, okay, we'll get back to the conferences too. But so the concept of a dark star would be a twin star, or it could be uh, the papa star of the sun, that the sun revolves around it. Yeah. It could I, be either, right? Right. I think they they believe that uh, normally binary systems are, are the stars are created at the same time. That doesn't mean they, they both capture the same amount of mass, so they might be different masses, mm. just as Sirius has Sirius A, which is uh, the brightest star in the sky, a blue sequence, just amazing, uh, huge star. And then little tiny Sirius B, which is a neutron star, you know, white dwarf. It's, it's a super dense, smaller than Earth, and it would... Uh, one so dense, the atoms are compacted that one teaspoonful of matter would weigh uh, roughly four thousand pounds. You know, two tons. Mm. So, so uh, binary stars come in all different shapes and forms, uh, and we have a couple of good candidates for our potential binary. But the reason it hasn't been actively pursued in the scientific community, I think, is because our curving motion through space has been completely filtered out to to uh, to mean that most scientists view the sun the sun as static and not moving not curving at all mm. because all the all the curve motion has been attributed to the precession theory mm. where it's thought that the earth is wobbling all 50 arc seconds so there is none left for the sun to actually move and so if nobody thinks the sun's moving, they don't think it has a companion. Mm. However, there's a bunch of other telltale signs that have cropped up very dominantly in the last 10 years or so. And a lot of this work is coming from Caltech. And so uh, they've noticed, for example, that um, there's a bunch of things like Pluto. These are called dwarf planets, which are uh, not only off plane, you know, Pluto is 17 degrees off the orbital plane of the other planets, mm. but 
it's they're also uh, have highly elongated uh, elliptical orbits, whereas all the other planets have just slightly elliptical orbits. Mm. And so when it was just Pluto, they didn't think much about it. But then when, when they found half a dozen of these, and all on the same side of the Earth, they're perihelions, their closest approach to Earth, all on one, I'm sorry, of the sun, all on one side, they started thinking, okay, this can't just be a coincidence. There has to be some big mass out there that is calling, causing all the dwarf planets to be, you know, hanging out this way. And uh, so, yeah, there's some hmm. very famous scientists. Uh, Mike Brown is sort of leading the, the packet at Caltech looking for a planet nine. And if you Google him online, you'll see that he's 100% sure it's out there. And they started thinking that it's, this thing's only one to two Earth masses, which is big enough by itself. And now they're up closer to, they went to five Earth masses, 10 Earth masses. Some people are saying 20, and there's a couple that are at 100. Mm. So the the dwarf planets, is it also interesting that uh, if you follow the Titus-Bode law, huh? um has proven to actually be correct. I mean, depends <laughs> how exact you want it. But uh, if you grant that there was an exploded planet uh, in the asteroid belt, and uh, then you, you look, I mean, they found one or two planets according to that principle. So, yeah, I think I think there's something to that. Yes. And now, we, of course, they talk about the Oort cloud, which I think is theoretical, but they talk about the Kuiper belt, which is not theoretical. That's actual. That's proven. Yes. Yes. Ur Uranus, uh, Neptune, and Pluto were all found because they noticed perturbations in other planets particularly Saturn as it would go near that point. And so they needed to have something there. There needed to be an object there. And that's how they find all these things with essentially with math. Um, and they find them rather quickly And once they notice the perturbations. So now there's this huge worldwide hunt. Uh, astronomers around the world are looking for this, what they think is a fairly massive ninth planet mm. because they need it to explain why all these dwarf planet orbits are elongated, why they have their all have their perihelions on one side of the sun, why all the rest of the planets even are are dragged down 6% below the plane of the sun's equator and and there's mm. about three or four other phenomena that need a big mass out there. What about what about the weird spin of uh, is it Venus? No, Venus is upside down. Um, but one of them is spinning the other way. Is that related? Well, the, no, but they they do need a way to explain that. If the accretion disk theory about why the solar system was formed is correct, then you need to mm. explain each thing that that kind of is is different from what a simple spinning plate accretion. Yeah, Velikovsky added his two cents on that. Right, yeah. But anyway, there's a whole bunch of reasons they need a big mass out there. And I think they will mm. find a big mass out there. But I believe that that it's actually a visible star, a very close visible star. Mm. And But that's not coming into the thinking as a hypothesis because they've already allocated all the motion of our solar system to this wobble theory that doesn't work and uh 
Yeah, but can't they observe that the Earth isn't wobbling for today? They can. So, so it's everything is uh, in space is is viewed relative to something else. You know, the, the big question is always relative to what? Mm. What's what's the speed of the Earth? Well, we're moving a thousand miles an hour on the surface of the Earth. We don't feel it, but relative to the center of the Earth, we are because right. The Earth is roughly 24,000 miles in circumference, and it takes 24 hours. So each hour we move 1,000 miles. Mm. And the Earth is going, you know, 66,000 miles an hour around the sun. And again, we don't feel it. We don't know that motion. But relative to the sun, that is the motion of our solar system. And so there's, when you say, can people know that the Earth isn't wobbling? Relative to the stars, it's a perfectly good explanation. Right. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's a matter of fact. That's what Copernicus came up with, and Newton then came along, you know, hundred plus years later, and said, "Okay, well, if the Earth is wobbling, it must be caused by the gravity of of the Sun and the Moon." And so the first. Yeah, but we're back to observing the elephant from different angles. Yeah, he came up with the wobble theory. Yeah. So now. Yeah, they kind of have to throw that theory out yeah. to have yeah. to have the arc seconds to work with to say, aha, mm. you know, it makes makes a lot of sense. And so I think that's kind of the next breakthrough. And I'm actually surprised that I get to talk about it this long uh, before paradigm changes out there. But, you know, <laughs> scientific paradigms change, you know, one dead scientists at a time. <laughs> at the yeah. time, yes, that's right. So you really, really got to wait a while. That's right. But except that in some very hard sciences, uh, it's harder to be a dogmatic because some things will just be too obvious. I think astronomy may be one of them. Let's say we, we map better Cooper belt than what's going on there. And by the way, you said the ninth planet is going to be the tenth if we recognize an exploded planet. <laughs> <laughs> just to that said. But uh, okay, so so we could go on about this, but I have other questions for you too. For example, when um, but they, oh, I want to ma- let, me, let me just yeah. interject yeah. real quick that sure, sure. The these two things play play together. So precession is the key to understanding that we're probably in a binary system with another star. That is merely the driver for the rise and fall of the ages because it creates the same type of celestial motion you have with the Earth spinning on its axis, getting more and less light each day and night, Mm. and the Earth going around the sun on an angle, getting more and less electromagnetism from the sun through the four seasons of the year. So that's how the two fit together. Mm. Yeah, right. And uh, by the way, what about the sun changing polarity? Shouldn't that affect us? Um, You know, I'm not very well schooled on that. I I do know that the Earth changes polarity, they think, roughly every 700,000 years or so. And they can tell that by by stones and uh, geology. It's a very well-known fact, and people believe we're were uh, sort of due for that uh, magnetic pole shift. Yeah, so, so I'm thinking it may be an actual tilt too. Yeah, there's, so there's three types of uh, pole shifts. But yeah, the one you know outlined in the movie 2012 is the most radical where you'd actually yeah. have this skin of the earth, like the peel of an orange, move around the orange inside. That, that would certainly account for a fall. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, Graham actually uh, 
some of his work and he mentioned, you know, Hapgood, right. uh, which, which is in that movie. And he actually was uh, one of the, one of the guys that uh, helped get 2012 going. I know that hmm. the story ended up much, much different than uh, his book, Fingerprint of the Gods. Yeah. Uh, but I think he's still got a paycheck for it. Right. Well, uh, Hollywood needs needs to scare us. Uh, <laughs> I believe Gra- Graham's message was more like more more in tune with yours because there's grounds for optimism is we moving from the lower vibration to the higher. So, and anyway, yeah, there, yeah, there is, but it's a bumpy road. Yeah, and, um, bumpy road. One thing, one reason I think it's so bumpy and causes so much turmoil is. You mentioned there's this all this technology nowadays, which is making things more transparent, and and it's taking order out of the system. And you know yeah. we're, um, but also our institutions, be they religious institutions, governance institutions, or uh, religions, these are things with hun- histories that are hundreds of years long, mm. and they don't change on a dime. No. So although our the world's individual population consciousness is is changing quickly. We're still much of our behaviors are governed by these institutions. And it's almost like enough people have to awake and then an institution or Polo suit, yeah. a political system breaks. And then we can kind of get onto the next level of consciousness, if you will. Yeah, but if you observe, let's take two two example, famous examples: the current Pope and the current Dalai Lama. If you compare them with their predecessors, most of them, at least, they are radically different. I mean, they would be both of them would be burnt at a stake. <laughs> <laughs> if it was long ago. So even the most conservative, um, slow-moving oil tankers are moving for better or worse. Yes. And even though that oil tanker has a new captain at the helm or the church has a new pope at the helm, mm. it really doesn't change the catechisms very much. You know, they still have these long set of rules that's been in place for a long, long period of time. Yeah. Yeah, but the same is true for science, uh, which is also an institution. I'm not talking about science as a method, but more the science as a paradigm, maybe. Yeah. We see, for example, the hard problem, consciousness, is really doing having a revolution now in one scientific field after another forced to acknowledge it as a major contributor just because of the data. Got it. And we see also very exotic science going on where they are documenting and it doesn't get the airtime of course uh, except obscure podcasts like mine but it, it nevertheless is there among the record it is fact-based science which cannot be uh, unless they just you know destroying all of science and just making it into a some kind of fascist institution <laughs> but yeah it is there the evidence is out there and uh, yeah. it will contribute there's one conference I, I've gone to a number of years. It's on uh, consciousness in the brain. And I remember when I first went there like 20 years ago, mm-hmm. it was 100% of the people were talking about how does the brain produce consciousness? And then after 10 years or so, it was like 10% of the people are saying maybe consciousness precedes <laughs> the growth growth of the cellular brain. Right. And now it's like 20, 25% are actually putting consciousness first, mm. which is 
which is cool and it shows we're we're thinking uh, you know more expansively yeah well we see this in all fields now uh, that the slow paradigm shift is is moving even acknowledging that there was an advanced um civilization uh, seems to get more time of day within mainstream academia yeah. of course still you have to be careful if you want if you know anything uh, deviating from the norm is a career killer uh, a more maybe a more obvious field is the ufo field which is now uh, cleaned up upgraded and called uap among the political correct but that's now completely allowed to entertain in mainstream science as long as you of course don't jump to any conclusions or and keep uh distance to you know aliens and et but if you just talk about the phenomenon bam completely so that we are in a paradigm shift collectively too you betcha. even though the media has never been more controlled and more should I say crystallized and and, and monolith, but that's because I think media's like what I represent are forcing the narrative. You know, the biggest shows in the world uh, today isn't anymore the corporate media, the old stream media. It's it's stuff like, for example, Joe Rogan. So, right. yeah, it's, yeah, and it's all all this stuff is to me, just evidence of transition from uh, a lower consciousness to a higher consciousness. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a lot of problems in the world because we're still pretty low on this totem pole. <laughs> but man, things are moving faster and faster and faster. Yeah. Uh, one more thing about uh, the physical stuff. Uh, you said that um, in mythology, you, uh, maybe you're familiar with the electric universe hypothesis, which is spreading yes. like wildfire. Yeah. Yes. They are taking it quite literally. Um, even some of the uh, saints and sages, I think I mentioned that book, The Holy Science, uh, by Swami Sri Yukteswar, written in 1894, mm. when they talk about the cycle of the yugas, he refers to it as an electric couple, and that the actually the he states that the entire inner and outer world change roughly every twelve thousand years. We go from the bottom of the cycle to the top of the cycle, and then back down again, mm. uh, one procession cycle. Um, so it's interesting that yeah, these these very wise uh, rishis mm. uh, also refer to it as as an electrical phenomena, and they did that probably almost a hundred years before the electric universe theory was out there. But mm. yeah, I find it fascinating. Mm. Now you. Your background is, uh, maybe we could call it business. And some people may think, well, that's weird. Why would uh, someone who's into that be into this? But I can see a, a, a correlation here, <laughs> if not a causation. And that's that, first off, what many people don't know is that there have been developed systems, uh, at least for, for 100, 150, uh, well, 100 years at least, where one tries to use cycles to analyze you know, chaotic systems like economy, yeah. because I don't believe there's any economical theory out there that uh, accounts for everything, although there are, of course, quality differences. But it's been very popular among, for example, uh, people who, who do stocks and trade, etc., to, to look at cycles. Um, 
in our show uh, we had uh, previously we've had uh, Peter Amundsen on who accounted for the Shakespeare codes and some of these people who were deep into that were also uh, developing mystic based I would say right. cycles to deal in in uh, business and we have also uh, some institutions, I forgot what they call, but, uh, you know, I'm not talking about astrological institutions, but institutions studying cycles uh, that are, you know, seeing that there are patterns going on. And that brings me to, and I have a longer reasoning, but bear with me and I, I, I'll let you comment upon anything I'm saying here. Yes, there, there's uh, this um, discrepancy within astrology about cause and effect, because the traditional view is that, okay, I see a planet moving in, on the sky. And then I observe in the world that some changes is going on and, oh, of course, the planet is beaming a ray into my skull and inf influencing me. That's the traditional old school. I, I don't mean the ancient, but like, let's say from Newton's time and up to now, but there's a consciousness shift even there, uh, akin to what we just talked about in, uh, in terms of consciousness versus brain. And that's that instead of saying that the celestial bodies are actually forcing us to behave like this or that, it's more like the heavens are a clock, a calendar, and we observe differences going on there. There's patterns there. And then we observe Earth and we see, oh, there's patterns in our culture too. Yeah. And maybe there's a correlation. In other words, maybe there's a deeper causation. It doesn't mean that the planet is actually influencing me, but that there is a common course to all the transformations and changes going on in the universe and that we human beings are just following the same energy shifts that anything else and then it's a very easy way to measure that by st studying the heavens because they are written in stone literally so we can use that sure. so that's an interesting thing you know in terms of course and effect but nonetheless there is a correlation between what's going on here and cycles on a bigger scale. So I can understand why someone who's into business and, and maybe trade and stocks and all that would find it interesting also to study cycles. Now, I'm completely ignorant upon how deep this goes and what you can glean from it, but I'm assuming you can contribute to enlighten us a little bit about these things. Yeah. I, you know, I was interested in cycles before I got into business. But I did find it interesting that if you can realize that there's a certain ebb and flow to to life and and any business you might start because you know businesses go through the s curve of sort of struggle to get it formed and get some traction and and then uh, the fast part of the slope when you when you're really taken off uh, to most people now have that product, there's a mature phase and so there's Cycles, yeah, are you see them all the time in businesses. Hmm. I think most of the people trying to apply it to the stock market have not been successful because. But are uh, they less successful than any other theory? I mean, it's, uh, it seems to me a monkey could, you know, <laughs> just push the button and, and do as well as anyone else. So there's tons of studies on it uh, in a Nobel laureates. Okay. Um, and uh, they've. They find that uh, modern portfolio theory and variations of it work because all these things, when you start to get into a market-based environment, game theory enters. So even if you did see a pattern mm -hmm. that, uh, that has worked, then a bunch of people say, oh, it, it works, so I'm going to buy here. 
Mm. And suddenly, instead of that being a low point in the market, that's now a high point because everyone's buying. Oh, so they ruin it. Yeah. And, and so, yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. So we we manage uh, over $5 billion at Acorns. I'm on that investment committee. And it's we just do it in a traditional ways. We listen to the Nobel laureates. We use portfolio management. Mm. And keep the choices very simple, you know, five portfolio choices, because one of the biggest factors that hurts returns is people switching styles or saying, I'm going to invest for the long term and then deciding three months later, oh, I need the money to, to go buy a boat or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And and so they, they ruin their returns uh, versus if you can hold asset classes for a long period of time, you can generally capture the the average um, return of that asset class. And the average return for, you know, an all equity portfolio is in the uh, 8, 10, 12% range, depending on where you are on the risk spectrum. You know, the, the smaller stocks will get you there, the higher end of that spectrum, but they'll have more volatility. So you probably get shaken out before it because you get scared mm. before you realize those returns. Whereas the lowest, uh, the least risky companies will give you the lower returns, but you'll probably hang on to them because they're not as scary to ride up and down. So, the, so that just confirms that you have to have money to make money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's capitalism. You can yeah. either have your labor working for you or your capital working for you. And I think right. anybody reasonably intelligent will accumulate some of the capital from their labor so that they don't have to labor so much in their older years and they just have their capital working for them getting those dividends yeah but but the, i think those who panic the fastest are those who don't have you know what they in, invest means more to them in a way so if you yeah. can right yeah i and you know here's an interesting point we've become so disengaged from uh, an agri-based society, which I think is where we are in the highest ages. Agriculture? Yes, mm. absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And because uh, we live very close to nature and there's hundreds of studies, you know, we're just all happy around nature, be it the ocean or the forests or in gardens that, you know, it's just, it's healthier, it's happier. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if it's really a golden age, we better be healthier and happier. Mm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, now Days, so many people are apart from that. And so we depend on this intermediary called money or capital. Mm -hmm. And it's really created a lot of stress. You know, if we were all just out there helping each other in an agricultural based society, theoretically, you wouldn't need any money. I mean, you'd probably it would need a larger degree of trust, you know, so something like the telepathic mm. order of the Treta Yuga, but it should be a lot less stressful. I think also tribes tribal whether it's hunter gatherer or or more stead bound tribes um would be a way to function in nature because we are also social creatures we also rely upon each other we cannot do everything ourselves even if even if i'm a, like a big uh, short uh, ceo <laughs> i need my whole company under me to 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 work right so uh, i think there's def different models of what would be an ideal uh, society, but I think a key, yes, like you say, is I, I can't deny the truth. Uh, when I look out the window, I see both 
mountains and hills, and I see grass and woods, and I see water. <laughs> and, and I very deliberately, or, or the last 20 years, always uh, deliberate that, that I have to have that in my immediate view, just on a psychological level. Uh, I get depressed uh, living in the city. When I was younger, uh, then it was big fun to live in the city. But yeah, it's something alienating about it. It's something very unhealthy about it, and not just physically, I think also psychologically. I, I agree. Mm. And so, yeah, I think the true environmental movement is is not so much about climate change and changing, trying to change carbon, which mankind has very little ability to do, mm. but is actually saving ecosystems and creating a much more beautiful and livable environment everywhere around us, whether we're driving somewhere or living somewhere or working somewhere, the more pristine we can keep our entire environment, just the healthier and happier everyone will be. Absolutely. I believe in the future when, if we get there and consciousness is raised, that cities will be greenified. We will. Thoroughly greenified. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there. Mm. Uh, but how could we practically relate to cycles? Let's disclose now that you are a founder of something called yeah. the Binary Research Institution. You are the founder of the Binary Research, right? Binary Research Institute. Institute, okay, yeah. Let's let's get get a little into that. What what is that? What are you guys doing there? And why did you at all create it? Yeah, that's just a, a nonprofit research institute to look at the possibility that our sun might be in a binary system. And so we're really examining the cause and consequences of solar system motion, mm. which is this everything we've been talking about, all this cycle. Yeah. Mm. And so yeah, I I've been lucky and in businesses, which are more financial technology. And um, yeah, I try to use some of the good fortune there to fund that research institute uh, that looks at these larger questions uh, about the cycles and what drives it and where we are in our time in history and that sort of thing. Mm. But uh, do, do you think there is a way? I mean, you, you're familiar with biorhythms, right? Yes. So there are systems like that, biorhythms and even astrology. In astrology, we, have, we talk about transits, where the idea is that if, because you've been talking about the grand scale of things, let's say we're moving from the age of Pisces into the age of Aquarius. So maybe not in my individual life, I'll, I'll see the great effects of that, although the, it would be the culturally and environmentally. But wouldn't, you know, the hermetic axiom as above, so below, or in the modern science speak, we live in a holographic universe. There's nothing in the universe that isn't repeated. Uh, one way or the other. So wouldn't it also be true then that there will be, should I say, color changes, atmosphere changes, energy changes, feeling changes on an individual or even a national scale, uh, but certainly also an individual scale, if it is a, uh, true on a collective and more and a longer time scale? Can't disagree with that. There's there's a lot of changes going on. I. I I know my one little area and you know we're trying to research and publish as much as we can and we produce podcasts on it and books on it and conferences on it and and films and and now we're doing this uh feature length but there's so many little so many more areas to study that 
Mm. I don't think I'm the most qualified. To talk. Yeah, what about, for example, you know, in yoga, there are ideas about, you know, how you should begin your day, how you should end your day. And I guess the same would be true in a life. Like, for example, people with lots of money and high consciousness, they tend to do what you are doing. They are spending their money on stuff that matters rather than just having 10 yachts. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so any any parting advice about that? From, from your own life? Uh, about yoga or starting the day? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, is there a way to live in, in harmony with the cycles, with nature, do you think? Tips on happy, healthy living? Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> doing, I mean, I... You're I, doing I, a Deepak Chopra now. <laughs> right. I, I begin my day with uh, a really nice period of yoga exercises. Uh, there's 36 of them, roughly. Mm. And then um, that kind of energizes the body and the mind. And then I go into meditation mm. and I love to go for a couple hours and have fun. Um, and then I feel really clear most of the day. So I practice uh, a yoga meditation technique, which, which really is um, a Kriya yoga. And it's just, just a way to lift the consciousness. So it's, it's, it is directly connected to a lot of the information that's taught in the mystery schools, but it's, but uh, you can in just intuit it all a lot faster through Kriya Yoga. And I think these practices are were all common in higher ages. Uh, are you familiar with the 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 gunas? You know everything. The word. Yeah, everything is either moving up, down, or just sort of in the middle, activating. Uh, mm. So these three qualities. You know, you can listen to music that'll take you up or take you down, or just just get you active. You can eat foods. It'll take you up, take you down, or get you active. Um, and there's and so there's yeah there's practices you can do, things you read uh, that can get you set for the day, that can help you go to sleep on the other end of the day. And mm. I think that's all just one big yoga, isn't it? Mm. Now what you said about yoga, I, I completely agree with you. It's uh, probably Sanskrit is the oldest. And alchemy, you know, in alchemy, it was so important to study the moon phases, especially in some medicinal um, things like spagyrics. So, um, yeah, we just had a little bump yesterday with the. Uh, yeah, the, what was it? The eclipse. Eclipse, yeah, that's right. We had one here too, but it wasn't that big. I think it was 40% or something. Yeah, the moon came in between the sun yeah. and the earth. Yeah. Well, okay, let's now move to first your books, because we have book readers in our audience. Um, is it one book you've written? How many is it? Uh, well, there's just the uh, the adult book, Lost Star, Myth and Time, mm. uh, which really gets into the history, science, physics of, of the great year and how it works. Yeah, I'm going to get that book. Okay. And then there's the kids' book, which is... The Great Year Adventures. Oh, that's a kid book. I, I saw that one. Yeah. yeah, with with Tommy the Time Traveling Turtle. Right, right, right. And um, a lot of podcasts <laughs> and, and the films. So, so you you what you're having your own podcast? Uh, yeah, I think we have about seventy of them out there right now, and everyone that we've had. At Let's our, give a shout out. What what's it called? Uh, Cosmic Influence. Mm. Yeah, and and they find it on all the podcast platforms. Yeah, so. Many of the people that have been on yours have been on ours because we've had most of them, you know, Graham Hancock and Robert Schock and mm. Robert Boval and John Anthony West and and 
all these guys uh, at our conferences. And so over the years, we either published those tapes or had them on a podcast also. Well, you say our con- uh, conferences, is that uh, uh, in um, the... That's the Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge. So we call it CPAC for short. Oh, are you one of, uh, are you running that one? Yes. What's our website there? Yeah, it's cpacconline.com. Yeah, CPAC Online. Yeah, we started it uh, 20 years ago, and I was struggling until Philly came along to help me. And, yeah, CPAC is, is uh, renowned. Yeah. People, Everybody interested in this knows about that. Of course, it's a bit unlucky that you call it CPAC because there's something else called CPAC. But... <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, it is indeed. So you, but that's not connected to the Binary Institute, or is that? It, it will change it to Cycle of the Ages. We also have that dot com, don't we? Okay, yes, we do. Okay, okay. Is it is it just point there? Yeah, right now it is. People go to Cycle of the Ages dot com. Yeah, in one word. Yes, I think so. Right, and then you get to right, CPAC, right. <laughs> not the Republican <laughs> CPAC, but just the. Uh, Would that be cycles just, or cycle? Of the ages, I think it's, uh, it's cycle of the ages. Singular cycle. Singular, okay. But but that is that connected to your uh, binary institution, or is that uh, independent of it? I think it's independent. Binary Institute is where we do much of the uh, the hard science research part of it. Yeah, that would be right. The uh, binary research institute.org. Yeah. Org. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Philly's been busy. We, we, tell them the others you got. You have. The great year, uh, greatyear.com, uh, loststar.com, which uh, you can see the podcast and about the movie. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And great year is, is what plot Plato called it. Yes. Yeah. I think it's it's a real easy term for it because we have the day, we have the year, you have the great year. Yeah. Yeah. And our full great year is, is it 24,000 or 12,000? Yeah. So it's the, you know, we've traced time where, where did, the clocks come from, they get as far back as Mesopotamia and they lose it. Um, but it appears to be a microcosm of the great year. You know, you have 12 hours of AM, just like you have 12,000 years ascending. Mm. And then you have 12 hours of PM, things getting darker, just like you have 12,000 years of things descending. And um, so, yeah, it appears that our system of time, uh, we've always had a little great year on a wristwatch in micro form. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So finally, the movie is called The Great Year. Yes, that's the Great Year documentary, which is out there. It's free to view online. You can see it at the Binary Research Institute website or just go to greatyear.com, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Anything else you want to plug? No. Matter of fact, got to get running here to another meeting. So I thank you very, very much, Al. I really enjoyed talking with you. You have a lot of knowledge in this. It was was an absolute pleasure. Okay, man. Thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks. Take care, Al. Al. Bye. Bye. And thanks again to Walt for dropping by and elaborating on this subject matter which we have touched in previous shows, like with Philip Lindsay and with Lauren Jeffries. Now, I'll keep it short and sweet today, and just remind you that we now can be found at Rumble, Odyssey, BitChute, and most, if not all, podcast platforms. For some reason, the YouTubers haven't caught up to this yet. 
And of course, like Bella always remind you, if you'd like to throw us a coin, especially a crypto coin, you will get first access to all our stuff via subscribing to our website, where all updates, public and for web subscribers, are announced at the front page. In other news, we now have an IMDb page, and when it eventually is complete, you will have full survey of all our episodes and guests, and some subsequent details there. And by the way, I wouldn't mind if you went over there and voted for our channel, or any episode, let alone left a review. And a big thanks to those of you who already do review us here and there. I occasionally notice these things, although I'm refrained from being able to comment or interact uh, with it, I do notice it, and it is much, much appreciated. In these censoring times, spreading shows like ours is an uphill battle, and it's basically down to you, the listeners, and whoever you interact with, on or offline. Our time together has come to an end for today. Thanks for visiting the forum and for your support. I've been your host, Al. And as substantiated from today's show, know that the word cosmos means harmonious, good, orderly arrangement. Peace in you. Number one.